Thanks for waiting. Waiting for what? Well, New York is polite to wait for your guests. Well, out here it's polite to thank somebody for saving your butt. My butt thanks you. My butt thanks you. Is that how you say thank you in New York? Thank you. You're welcome. Nunny. So who's that guy? That's Ricketts. He's one of my dad's friends. Pate. Pate? No. Dad told me this place was a desert. No, that's 20 miles west. It's called the Kalahari. Looks pretty green to me. Well, it... The Kalahari isn't the Sahara. It's got dunes, but there's also... <laughs> but there's also bush and salt pans. Nani, cat food belongs on the ground. <laughs> Welcome back, everybody, to Ramblin', an Amblin' podcast. The podcast where we travel across the dunes of Amblin' Entertainment, exploring the vast plains of the studio formed in 1981, searching for trivia, examining nostalgia, and all the while, waiting for something, anything, to happen at all. (laughs) (laughs) I am one half of your hosts. Andy Godian. And I'm the other half, Joshua Glenn. Wait, let me do that again with more energy. And I'm the other half, Joshua Glenn. <laughs> one more time in the middle. And I'm the other half, Joshua Glenn. Lovely. I'll, 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 I'll see, pick, I'll pick see pick which one, one I want to use. <laughs> um, we're back after a little hiatus from work duties, yeah, stag duties. Sorry about that. It's all right. We, had, we were having fun. <laughs> fun and play and work. <laughs> and we have suspect slightly in the back of our minds... Uh, Mildly putting this one off. <laughs> I definitely had time to watch this. I just, several nights, I just didn't, mm-hmm. and uh, and it became easier to put it off and put it off and put it off. It was a, a similar thing as with Fivel. Fivel, we put Fivel off quite a few times, uh, but that was largely well. One, we had another variable there, and then it was Barry. So we we're trying to combine our schedules. This was purely us. Yeah, <laughs> uh, slight avoidance tactics. Mm-hmm. We have been busy, boys. But, busy, uh, boys. Life's busy. Work's busy. Yeah. We have jobs. We have full-time jobs. This is a passion project for us. So sometimes the thing we're paid to do has got us to take precedence in this capitalist society that we live in. Indeed. But um, it also, also because we're discussing a film that neither of us seen no. for. Hadn't heard anything about. And no. by all accounts, it's, it's, again, kind of like a cultural crater, as it were. It <laughs> it's just it, like, yeah. It's, it's tumbleweed. 
in uh, the the Amblin Entertainment canon, really. It's tumbleweed <laughs> in, in any way you look at it. It's but a big old nothing. You never know. Sometimes when this happens, as we have found before, mm. yeah. it might work out to some form Thing of is, pleasure. Thing is, you say uh, that, we always, we all, we always go into these cases in the Amblin filmography with that mindset. When is it paid off? The nearest I could think of is Joe versus a volcano, but that's yes. got ardent, passionate but defenders. I've seen that before as well. I try, I Fandango. Nope. Fandango. Nope. <laughs> the money pit. Nope. Dad. Nope. Continental Divide is interesting on a <laughs> more macro level. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's the one that I look back the most fondly because that was our first ever episode, yeah. and, uh, <laughs> and that brought us together in this way. Mm-hmm. But uh, we're now in 1993, and we return to you with our episode on Mikhail Solomon's 1990... I've said 1993, I'll say it one more time. <laughs> 1993 coming-of-age adventure drama wow. thing. <laughs> it's like two whole months have passed with no obvious signifiers at all. <laughs> A far-off place. Released by Walt Disney Pictures, and executive produced by Anlin Entertainment's own Kathleen Kennedy and Frank Marshall. Mm-hmm. Um, before we get into it, I would love to know what Joshua Glenn thought of Far Off Place was all about. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I actually did write something for this. Uh, you know, to be fair, I always do write things yeah. for, for the synopses. Um, I toyed with doing nothing for this episode. I toyed with not even finishing the film <laughs> because it was hard. But anyway, we get ahead of ourselves. For now, let me tell you, dear listeners, because let's face it, you're not going to have watched this film, even though <laughs> this might be a little bit illegal, but it is on YouTube. I found that it is on is YouTube. It's a whole thing on YouTube. So little little Andrew Gerdion sitting across from me, are you paid to, per- paid to rent it on Amazon? <laughs> uh, but it is it is not getting around on YouTube. That's not, I also watched your rental version. Yeah. Well, I think really I guess good it's boys. something you're very welcome to do for this Disney film that Disney themselves have chosen not to put on <laughs> Disney Plus. <Yeah. laughs> Weird. Well, I mean there's worse stuff than this on Disney Plus. Yeah. I, I'm at, I don't think it's probably like a I think they just forgot. Form. They just forgot they have it. They have it. All right, all right. Let's, let's do the plot then. So, uh, far off place. Stinky New York brat Harry, played by Ethan Randall, is dragged by his dad. I'm not going to bother mentioning his name because he dies very soon. Uh, played by Daniel Gerol or Gerol, to visit some family friends in the Kalahari Desert. These friends are Paul and Elizabeth Parker, played by Robert John Burke and Patricia. Columba, respectively. The little squiggly red line uh, in my document sometimes throws me off when it yeah, comes to seeing I what words that. say. Like, oh no, what have I done? Respectively. <laughs> uh, who are the local wildlife commissioners engaged in the fight against elephant poaching and trying to disrupt the ivory trade. No, that's a bit of a badly worded sentence. They're engaged in the fight against elephant poaching. They are trying to disrupt the ivory trade. They're not also in a yeah. fight against They're trying to guys. disrupt the ivory trade. <laughs> that was written half-heartedly on my lunch break today. <laughs> Did not check it again. Their daughter is Nonny, played by Reese Witherspoon, who spends her time playing with dynamite with other family friend Colonel Mapani Theron, played by Maximilian Schnell. No, sorry, Shell. Yes. Uh, and generally being a Reese Witherspoon type. Nonny and Harry immediately clash, his brash city ways bristling against her benevolent colonizer archetype. One night, maybe we'll delete that. I don't know. I wasn't sure how I felt about that. There, there are overtones. There are, but I didn't know overtones. how much we wanted. So maybe we can do. I don't know. We'll see. We'll, we'll see, see how the rest of the. We'll see how the rest forms. of this goes. 
One night, Harry follows Nonny as she sneaks out of the house to hang out with her Bushman friend, Kabu, played by Sarai Bok, who it turns out has just been mauled by... (laughs) 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 Who turns out has just been mauled by a leopard. (laughs) The three of them seek shelter in the cave for the evening to regain... I, I haven't read this through. I wrote this on my lunch break, and then I had to dash into the office for this meeting, and then I, I came pretty much straight here. So I, I didn't read it through. I was I was messaging you so well, confident. We have full time jobs. <laughs> saying, oh yeah, no, I did it all on my lunch break. It's fine. Uh, one night, Harry follows Nonny as she sneaks out of the house to hang out with her Bushman friend Kabu, played by Surrey Bok, who it turns out has just been mauled by a leopard. The three of them seek shelter in the cave for the evening to regain strength and avoid further attacks. In the morning, Nonny returns to her house to find hers and Harry's parents brutally murdered by big proponents of the ivory trade, including Jardin, played by Miles Anderson, and, in a shocking twist, family friend John Ricketts, played by Jack Thompson. She does a few explosions and then runs back to Harry and Kabu, warning them that everyone is dead and they'll be next if they don't scarp her. And so, with the baddies kind of in pursuit, the three of them have to traverse 2,000 kilometres across the desert to find deliverance in a port town, all the while learning a thing or two about Bushman life, and maybe, just maybe, discover a little something about themselves in the process. (laughs) Come back, Dad! All is forgiven! (laughs) Sorry, everyone. That was a mess of an attempt there. It's alright. <laughs> it's all about this, probably what this film deserves. Work has been tremendously busy, though, I have to say. So my mind is at most like an eighth on this. Mm-hmm. Well, not right now. Right now, I'm all here, baby. Right I'm now, right I'm here. all in, baby. When you hit record, it's 110%. <laughs> Impossible. Can't give 110%. You can't. You, can tr- you can't. Oh. Anyway. So we've, as we've touched upon in our intro there, this is a film neither of us has heard of before. Yes. Um, cl- clearly one Disney has also forgotten and not one that uh, when speaking to anybody, when when like in casual conversation, people gone, oh, it's coming up on the podcast next. Like, a far off place? And yeah. they're like, huh? <laughs> Je ne sais pas. Je ne sais pas. It is interesting for a couple of reasons. Mm-hmm. It's one of Reese Witherspoon's early roles. I think only a second or third. Mm. I think it's about 16 when they were shooting this. 16, 17, yeah. Um, young. So I, it, it's got a curiosity to it in that regard. Mm. If you like kind of seeing where big stars kind of started and fo- started to form that kind of acting pattern. And, and you get a lot of that personality that kind of comes through. Pretty much out of the box. Yeah. <laughs> she's she's with a spoon, baby. Stop saying baby. Jesus Christ. You start again. Say baby. No, it's just... It's, damn thing over no this is a bad attitude joshua come on <laughs> so uh, I, in light of this lack of connection and pre-existing knowledge yes. of i'm just going to dive straight into the production notes yeah this is going this is going to be an in 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 our episode <laughs> so auntie what could you because i it, it was like i've done all right actually, rock. i, I want to say i've done all right i had to turn to bloody imdb trivia for That's, anything of note quite sure yeah. even that is quite short so yes you you go right ahead and yeah let's uh, see now this this film is an adaptation of two short stories a far off place and a story like the wind written by Lawrence vanderpost who is by all accounts a right see you next tuesday <laughs> <laughs> That's I'm always not going to give him any more airtime because he it sounds like a horrid bloke. If you're that interested, look it up. 
um, with the screenplay itself being put together by three credited screenwriters. Robert Caswell, who had received an Oscar nomination for Evil Angels in 1988. Sally Robinson, who had in the previous year written the Sean Connery drama Medicine Man. And Jonathan Hensley, who had been working with Lucas and Spielberg on scripts for the young Indiana Jones Chronicles on TV. And would go on to write Die Hard with a Vengeance, Jumanji, Con Air and Armageddon. It's a pretty good run, that. Yeah, good 90s. (laughs) Were they all together is it an no, I, A-N-D it's or an, an ampersand? It's an A-N-D, so I think that it was all little rewrites ah, okay. as it went along. Um, by all accounts, I think it was Caswell did the first one. Sally Robinson was brought on to uh, give a bit more of a... Because uh, the perspective very much is of Reese Witherspoon's character, so mm. inject a bit more of a female perspective into the script. And then Spielberg had been in, had, had his eye on Jonathan uh, Hens- Hensley from... The Indiana Jones Chronicles, and I think he had already sold his Simon Says script, which was what became Die Hard with a Vengeance um, earlier in the 90s. Right. But, and that eventually got made in 96, I think. Yes. <laughs> um, the film started production with Rene Manzor as, a di- as the director in place, with the shoot set to, t- set to commence in Namibia and Zimbabwe. The French filmmaker had likewise caught the eye of Spielberg with his first two films of Passage in 86 and Deadly Games in 89, and was thus hired to direct episodes of The Young Indiana Jones Chronicles, uh, before being hired for this as his next uh, Spielberg slash Amblin project. Did you ever watch that TV show? No, never, weirdly enough. I had a great time with that show. I was a big fan of that when I was a kid. Always used to be on BBC Two <laughs> on a Sunday afternoon, I want to say. I, I, my, I feel like my go-to uh, Spielberg thing is BBC Two, Sunday afternoon. <laughs> yeah, you're in, in the house a lot at Sunday afternoon. And Dad would say, get outside and play with your friends, Josh. No! <laughs> I was watching Crocodile Dundee for the, for the, <laughs> the 50th time. time. <laughs> I'm going to work that into the conversation later on, by the way, Crocodile Dundee. So. This feels a bit more natural for it then in the past but um, it was Mandor who was aboard the project when the young Witherspoon and Randall were cast both of whom were very much just starting out in their careers and would go on to later reunite in Sweet Home Alabama in the early noughties (laughs) future Oscar winner Witherspoon had a few TV movies under her belt but had made more of an impression in her big screen debut in the 1991 film The Man in the Moon while Randall himself had a few roles um to his credit on the big screen, including Defending Your Life, Dutch, and All I Want for Christmas, all released in 1991. Who is he defending your life? No, I've read about it a lot, and it feels like something I'd probably quite enjoy. About it. No? no? I, I, I did one, a bit of an Albert Brooks. One, right? Yeah, which yeah. is a great concept, but it's my least favourite of his, I think, yeah. which is weird because it seems like the kind of thing that we'll be into is a couple of Amblin boys, mm. very, cap- very Capri, okay. but it bristle, yeah, brushes up against his um, sharper edges a little bit, and it comes across very weird. Mm. But then I feel like I'm in the wrong because it is beloved, mm-hmm. and I should give it a look. Just doesn't, I don't know. It does, that, like you say, it all it all very much appeals. Mm. Other main roles overseen in the casting by Manza included the casting of veteran actor Maximilian Schell, who'd won an Oscar back in 1961 for Judgment at Nuremberg, um, as mentor figure Mapani, um, Mapani Ferron. Um, who, despite being a very, a very much an Austrian Swiss actor playing a very South yes. African <laughs> <Yes>. character, <laughs> um, 
and Jack Thompson as villain John Ricketts. Uh, uh, Thompson himself was a big figure in Australian new wave cinema. And do you know what he went on to star in in the early thousands? Corey Elden D in Los Angeles. No. <laughs> he was um, Lars, um, the older Lars who married Shimmy Skywalker. Oh, no way. Oh, I thought you'd like that. Bit. I did like that. <laughs> we were just talking about Attack of the Clones earlier on. We'll bring that back into the conversation shortly. So with everything set, Manzor began shooting in May of 1992 in, um, uh, where did I say? Namibia. Namibia and Zimbabwe. However, about three weeks into the shoot, he was fired along with cinematographer Pat Guele. 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 Let's go with that. (laughs) I listened to me for pronunciation. That's always a good idea. Uh, he w- he was fired along with cinematographer Paul Guillet and several other crew members after Disney executives had gone in and viewed the initial dailies. Among many things, uh, the footage was severely out of focus. <laughs> the, the blame of this was put on the, uh, our pal, the cinematographer, who was described as in, his over, in over his head and out of his league, and the production's older set of Panavision anam- anamorphic lenses just simply not being good enough for capturing the action. Mm. Uh, Kathleen Kennedy was the one who swooped in to save the day, originally asking Mikhail Solomon to take over as cinematographer, as she had shown him an early draft of the script, which he had loved, while they were working together on Always, um, which you can go back to a few episodes' time to revisit what we thought of that one, because, of course, Solomon was the cinematographer on that film. And and he asked her to remember him if there was ever any chance of him being able to shoot a far-off place. But it was Mr. Spielberg himself who pitched for Solomon Solomon to direct, um, knowing that he had been wanting to move from cinematography to the directing chair for some time. Bit more of a background of uh, Solomon for for you here. Uh, A man who we have met before and he aforementioned always, and he also shot Frank Marshall's Arachnophobia. Um, Born in Copenhagen, Denmark, uh, Solomon had a prolific career in Danish cinema and TV before deciding to re- relocate to old Tinseltown, Hollywood in the late 1980s, where his first mainstream American film was The Torch Song Trilogy, a 1988 comedy drama starring Harvey Feinstein, Anna Bancroft, and Matthew Broderick. But it was in the following year that he really broke out as a hotshot cinematographer, new kid on the block, when he... Uh, worked with James Cameron on The Abyss, a film that helped to pioneer um, the field of computer-generated visual effects, with uh, Salomon very much working side-by-side side with Cameron on developing new techniques. Uh, for the complica- complicated aquatic shoot, Salomon used three cameras and watertight housings that were specifically designed by him and Cameron. Another special housing was designed for scenes that went from above-water dialogue to below-water dialogue, and seamless action, so they didn't have to keep cutting and switching, but switching out cameras for the job. The filmmakers also had to figure out how to keep the water clear enough to shoot and dark enough to look realistic at 2,000 feet, which was achieved by floating a thick layer of plastic beads in the water and covering the top of the tank with an en- enormous tarpaulin. His work on the difficult shoot earned Solomon a nomination for an Academy Award for Best Cinematography and uh, like we say, it is a big reason why uh, 
just think of like the new trailer for Avatar The Way of Water, mm. the kind of way mm-hmm. that they're shooting in water. That would not have happened if it weren't for Solomon's com- contributions to the setup for The Abyss. With the beads. Indeed. <laughs> Should have watched The Abyss before doing this. It's, it's been on my radar for so long. <laughs> yeah. The Avatar looks great as well. Mm-hmm. We're very excited for that. This is. <laughs> Um, along with collaborating with Spielberg in the late 80s with Always and Frank Marshall on Arachnophobia, <clears throat> Solomon also worked with Ron Howard on Backdraft, for which he also received a nomination not for cinematography, but for his work in the visual effects department, and Far and Away, um, which was his last credit as a cinematographer before making the permanent move to becoming a director. So, after accepting the offer to step up to the director's chair of a far-off place, Solomon asked Juan Ruiz Anchia, who had just shot Glengarry Glen Ross, to be the new cinematographer, and rushed ordered a new set of Panavision's newer, sharper, primo anaphomorphic lenses. <laughs> <laughs> and where can I buy one, Andy? <laughs> They've moved on. <laughs> you, you, could, you could do a... I don't know if QVC and that kind of thing is still going on, but you got QVC's a voice for it. still going, I think. I'm not sure I feel that the... the the live situation. <laughs> I guess this is live. I think you get this is live. <laughs> to a point, it's live when we're doing it. Sharper, primo, anamorphic lenses. I probably wouldn't do it in an accent the whole time. We need to. We need to. <laughs> Shooting then proceeded, seemingly going off without any other hitches, and wrapping in the September of 1992, going into the editing bay to be ready for its March 12th, 1993 release date. The film upon release was somewhat, uh, somewhat had a muted reception, although it did come accompanied with the last ever produced Roger Rabbit cartoon, Trail Mix-Up, which we did watch just before this, and it was we a did. delight. <laughs> in a good mood. <laughs> um, but the film itself received lukewarm reviews from the critics and an even colder reception at the box office, earning just $12.8 million overall in its worldwide takings. Do we know its budget? No, its I couldn't find budget? it at all. I'd be very curious to know, especially mm. given what they had to scrap and redo. Yeah, and the fact it's on, on location as well, yeah. that, would have, that would have been, there's a lot of logistics in there. And there's yeah. a lot of fake animals. <laughs> and, uh, the catering. <laughs> Just think of the goddamn catering. <laughs> Teenagers eat a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Salomon, however, would go on to continue as a director predominantly on television, directing the miniseries Samen's Lot, The Company, and The Andromeda Strain, the latter of two of which he received uh, Emmy nominations for Outstanding Directing, um, as well as winning an Emmy for uh, directing two episodes of the fantastic miniseries Band of Brothers. Mmm, mmm, never seen it. It's very good. Mad, isn't it? That? Amblin TV. <laughs> well, that's our next series when we're in our 40s and we finish this. <laughs> So you really think we can make it to Carlstown? Wind can do it. We can do it. I don't want that bushman crap. I want a real answer. You want a real answer? Let me hear the bushman version again. But now onto the film itself. Um... As I mentioned there, the kind of critical reception at the time was a bit muted. Mm-hmm. Um, 
couldn't really find too many contemporaries beyond what was listed on Wikipedia. Um, with film historian and critic Leonard Moulton, um, considering the plot to be borderline slow, but head on straight, <laughs> and said that the frank treatment of death makes this iffy for young kids, but older children to find it rewarding. And uh, the other critics at the time, I think Ebert as well, talked about the kind of dark tones that this strikes for a PG, seemingly PG-friendly Disney adventure mm. movie. Which is where I think I kind of want to start this off, because it feels the most glaring thing about the whole film yeah at least from my perspective and particularly like so we just watched this so watch a rabbit, rabbit cartoon. cartoon but to be fair ends with him annihilating planet earth, planet earth. <laughs> on youtube if you fancy it yes yeah. it's good good fun nine minutes to kill, yeah. kills nine minutes pretty easily um but it's like, it's like you know that's fun it's energetic it's colorful yeah. it's decidedly kid friendly and then the opening scenes of a far-off place feature um Poachers going after elephants and massacring them, mm. and then followed by Mapony, um, Mapony, Snell, no, Snell, Snell, Maximilian, Maximilian, Maximilian coming, Shell. and then shooting said poachers. So it's a really abrupt, um, violent Ka-chow. opening straight away with uh, yeah. lots of animal death and then human human death, death. <laughs> and then this, this this hero shot of yeah. this. <laughs> And then that itself then abruptly cuts into like a opening titles for the film. That's just yeah. like going over the dunes with James Horner doing his best Lawrence of Arabia kind yeah. of style adventure. I, the score, score pissed me off in this movie. <laughs> I like, I mean, you like James Horner. I know yeah. you like James Horner as well. The score did piss me off a little bit. <laughs> I think it's because it like it has to do a lot of heavy lifting i think mm. <laughs> yeah I sp- I sp- yeah I mean, it's filling in a lot of blanks but he seems yeah. to be just playing from an existing playbook you think okay this is this is how this should sound this, this is, is how, how this scene is to sound yeah cuz yeah, like there's even like comedy scenes where it's like but um so yeah like even from the off right from the very off and even without having of watched the Roger Rabbit cartoon yes. ahead of this it's so it so abruptly veers from one thing to the other, and I, what was your what was your take on the kind of actual the the vibe, the tone of the whole thing? The vibe. Well, <laughs> I, I should say we um because we have been rather busy professionally and also personally. I'm not going to keep banging this drum to make excuses for ourselves, but it has meant that. I think, did we both watch it in installments? No, I watched it in one go. You're much better at this than I am. (laughs) I've watched films that I enjoy in one installment. (laughs) Um, I started watching it, I think, the other day, at the weekend at some point, and got about 15 minutes in, and it was just before the crucial turn in the narrative that I left. And you said, when I saw you, because I came to see you, you said, what's just happened for you? And I explained to you, oh, you're about to have a very strange tonal shift. (laughs) And, uh, (laughs) yes... See how you take that. So that weirdly enough, that gave the film attention that it did not earn on its own accord. <laughs> I was thinking, what is going to happen? That's going because I hadn't I hadn't read much beyond the you know elevator pitch that it's two kids traversing the desert. Yeah. Um, and then when it happens, you've got you. I mean, you've got the abrupt opening. Then you've got the sort of soft introduction of the the characters and the family dynamics, and it's a lot of sort of gentle like teenage flirting and you know kids up to antics and learning the ways of the the uh the locals and that that crap and then you have this sudden right hand turn into some quite graphics a bit too strong 
But it's certainly emotionally graphic. Yeah. What happens? She she returns to her house and she finds the bloodied corpses of, of her parents, her and parents, Harry's dad. and Harry's dad. And, and then she runs to like the, <laughs> the like the person who kind of watches over the 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 area as well, and they're dead too. So yeah, it gets yeah. to the point where literally any adult figure that they're turning to to help is just dead. <laughs> I want his wife dead. I want his kids dead. I want his cat and his dog dead. And then she she uh, she returns to uh, Kabu and Harry, uh, and and they begin their perilous trek across. But it's like immediately this uh, this vivid trauma, this viscerally upsetting thing that happens in her life, is just subsumed to teenage antics. And it's very very strange because you have one foot in this story that wants to engage in this real world thing that is poaching and that is the ivory yeah. trade. And the crime associated with that, and the exploitation, and you have this other foot in this more Bambi sort the of Disney fantasy film. <laughs> kind of realm, yeah. And one of the things that I that sort of got me is um, you can you can go from that kind of family massacre to a fantastical calling in something like Star Wars, say, because that is what happens to Luke, like his Aunt Beru and Uncle Owen get burnt to a crisp <laughs> in Star Wars. And then within minutes, it's like, hey, cool, the Force, let's go, it's a pretty princess, la 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 la, and it's all good. And that works because it is so tonally high fantasy. Whereas this film, it seems to want to have it both ways. Yeah. It wants to dabble, evoke these things, but not deal with any of the emotional fallout and paper over that with these twee kind of pseudo-spiritual, almost condescending homilies, you know what I mean? And, yeah, and... like there's particularly a bit where the elephants, like, ca- ca- oh, has boy. a <laughs> chat with some elephants and yeah. he's like, they've agreed to help us. And I'm like, oh, again, this is... you. These kids were literally just mourning the yeah. gun down, their gun-down parents and now we're doing a silly bit where the character's talking to elephants and the elephants are going to cover their tracks for them. I'd just be like, oh. <laughs> and you think about how graceful and um, efficient and economical they, the, the death of um, Land Before Time boy. What's mom, his? Littlefoot. Littlefoot's mum is dealt with. It's, it's, it's one scene, but you have yeah. this wealth of, of feeling and emotion. It hangs over the whole thing. It hangs over the whole thing, yeah. I'm not. I, it, it, when I was watching this, I thought, "Well, what what do I really want?" Because I'm annoyed at it for trying this thing, and I'm also annoyed at it for trying this thing. I think I'm just annoyed at it for existing <laughs> more than anything else. But it does. It is. It it's sort of half arsing two separate tones, mm. and it makes for this weird little hodgepodge that is just very dissatisfying, and it's a real slog, even at a hundred and something minutes. Barely yeah. even that though. It's not long, it and, and long. yeah, <laughs> it's hard to get through, man. Yeah, so I don't know. What, what did you? What, what did you think? There were uh, again. I, I fully agree. The kind of tonal shifts really threw me, and I was just kind of like, I just don't know what you're going <laughs> yeah. for. I just really don't know what you're going for because it it did make me sit up and pay a bit more attention when you have this mm. um, moment where she comes back home and finds the parents dead. And then there's quite a good extended sequence where she's in the house and she's like, ah, mm, crap, mm. the people. The, it's nicely shot. There are some really yeah. good expressive shots and, in that um, sequence. And, and she goes a bit like mini Rambo for a moment mm. and gets some dynamite and blows up some of the trucks that the poachers had. It's in it. traps adjacent. Yeah. Adjacent. <laughs> it's traps adjacent. And um, it's when they kind of go off on their, their journey itself that the film then is kind of like, oh, we should probably pet this up a little bit yeah and it like 
again, it veers so much back and forth between those tones, but also to the point where it's like trying to come up with incident and just ends up feeling quite episodic where you just have beats happening where it's like, I, there's the elephant encounter. There's part where they're um, hanging, <laughs> make their bot, <laughs> make fake bodies so yeah. that to deceive the poachers who are after them. They steal eggs from ostriches. They make clothes out of a uh, wildebeest skin. <laughs> um, there's a perilous bit with crocodiles uh, with or alligators. I don't know. Crocodiles and uh, dogs chasing them, mm. and a dog jumping over a ravine. <laughs> he's hanging off the ravine, which in theory is exciting. But yeah. listen to the tone of our voices recounting. Also, this. it just looks like like there's someone just chucks yeah. Ethan Emery a, a, a stuffed dog and just go go catch it. Because <laughs> there's lots of like weird bits like this as well, where you're like, oh, there's some nice photography of some actual animals yeah. on the yeah. airplanes, and then it cuts to like this weird like ostrich puppet head in the frame just going around <laughs> like this <laughs> so uh, it was kind of boggling in that regard but also quite dull and boring yeah. <laughs> I, I, it's, it's a shame to say because it's not you can't really put a lot on Solomon I don't think because mm. he's, he's coming in late as late in the day as you can get, really. He's a last-minute yeah. replacement yeah. on a film that's already been shooting for three weeks. It's all cast. The script's locked down. You can't really shift outside of those parameters. And I think what he does bring to it, along with uh, working with um, Juan Ruiz Anchia, is that they do their best with the location that they have to mm. make it at least more visually interesting than yeah. the kind of slightly jumbled dry narrative offers and that like even some scenes that i do think are close quite close to working on a emotional level there's this one scene where it's a bit later on and uh they've they're lost for two months <laughs> dark night rises two months time jump because somebody off all of a sudden just goes like they've been gone for two months <laughs> you're like what when did two months and pass? I was just like, huh? <laughs> I should be emaciated, leather skinned. That's fine. They made a big straw where they could oh, they made, drink. They, the... they drink water from the ground and they they, and they got a farm turnips, <laughs> whatever that thing was. Hmm. But there's one scene where um, Reese Witherspoon and ha- Harry, Henry, Henry, Harry. I've been calling him Harry. Calling Harry. him Harry. <laughs> Um, they're sat on a rock and they're kind of one's facing one way mm, another's facing yeah, one yeah, way yeah. it's at moonlight and they're having quite a frank conversation about um, their parents death and Harry mentions about his mother having passed away years before as well and that's quite like an affecting moment largely down to one the way it's shot um, and using uh, the mm. moonlight in a very dynamic fashion and also there, there are two very strong Teen performances at the well, at least one very strong and one a, a bit more me, flip me, floppy, me, 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 me. <laughs> one a bit more annoying. Yeah. But in this scene, he works, and I, I, largely I think because of the strength of what uh, the young Witherspoon's bringing mm. to it, who makes it like she makes her character stand out. You, yeah, you do get a good sense of um who who she is, and yeah, she yeah she's 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 quite commanding for from it. No it, matter how wet the kind of teen romance ends <laughs> up, <laughs> it is funny because she's all. I'm a big fan of her. I do like her as yeah. a as a screen presence and as a performance. She's great. But her, I always feel like her 
the flavor she brings is a certain degree of precociousness even as mm. a grown woman she has this maybe it's because election was her like one of her big oh, yeah, ended up being a, really the big calling card and, yeah wasn't it? <laughs> but the, it in this role the precociousness works because she's playing i think a 14 year old so for someone to act older than their years is the literal you know definition of, of, yeah. of precocious so you kind of but it's funny how she just cut onto that here and thought, okay, this is this is all I do. This is my yeah. This, this is, is the lane persona. I've got. <laughs> Very reductive. She does much more than that, I know. But that is sort of the uh, the the broad stroke. But she's, I think, she's quite good. She's, I mean, yeah, yeah. She's a, I think she's, she's a pro. I think she's good in it. Him. Sure. Oh man, he's just such a whiny little so and so. He's yeah. such a little again. Whiny no, little... Like it, that feels the most kind of like tapped on. Mm. modern part of this story though. it is my listening to my headphones on my Sony Walkman <laughs> <laughs> and he thinks oh, the kind of like dead. and just that whole like beat where he thinks that um, the cultural exchange that uh, Kabu is like handing him by teaching him how to live on land and mm-hmm. survive skills he thinks that like appropriate cultural exchange to tell him what TV is. <laughs> yeah, and then that that brings up that really really hacky joke in films like this and it's when like the um the native native tribes person like struggles to conceive of the idea of like, yeah. the camera or the the television or the Walkman, and it's just so played out. It's mm. such a hoary thing to bring in, and that's what made me think of a similar joke in Crocodiles and D. <laughs> <laughs> and that, I mean, I'm not gonna make any claims that film's a masterpiece, but I do like <laughs> how that takes that trope and gives it a little twist. And it's yeah. when. They meet um, Mick Dundee's Aboriginal friend, Nev Bell, and Sue, the American reporter who's in the outback doing a story on Mick Crocodile Dundee, gets a camera out and goes to take a photo of the of, of Nev Bell. And he says, ah, oh, no, you can't take my photograph. And she says, oh, I'm sorry, you believe it'll take your spirit away. And he goes, nah, he got your lens cap on. <laughs> it's pretty good. I mean, that's, that's fair, that's it's bad. pretty good. And I thought about that moment in the bit when Harry and um, uh, Nani or Kabu. Kabu. Yes, they take out the pause in 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 the edit uh, when they're talking Maybe about television. <laughs> the walkman is yeah. I thought, hey, just you know, I, yeah. it, 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 it's just like it's a trope that has this. The whole th- I don't really want to get into that. Do you want to get into this? I don't think I want to get into this. I don't know, but there is a whiff of like of that. I, I jokerly said benevolent colonizer in my synopsis. Yeah. But there is that joke of like, it's not like, there's not a white savior trope as such, but there is that kind of. There's an air of like white superiority to it, which feels a little I think uneasy. So. At and... the very least, it's a sort of cultural tourism. Yeah. It is in, um, it, it's borrowing things and it's, it's packaging them for, uh, you know, a, uh, and uh, uh, a, a quote-unquote Western audience in a way that's yeah. seen as safe and and uh, and contained. And I wonder how radical like this, that. like that, that kind of depiction would have felt in the early nineties, and mm. whether it's just oh, this is several years after years Crocodile Dundee. Close to it, it's like feeling a bit more. Just... <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't know, and and I mean, and and you know, it did film there on location. It didn't, you know, yeah. double it for anywhere. I don't know. It certainly does trade in those cliches, though. It does trade in those cliches, and it just rubs me the wrong way a little bit. Mm. But you're right. I mean, I'm looking at... I, I, I don't even know if I... 
I, I'm looking at things from a, a contemporary perspective and also mm. I'm aware that I've got a, a blinker perspective of my own so maybe what I'm bringing to this is completely off base and maybe yeah. it is because I, I, I do also I like don't know. I, I feel like as well like Cameron at certain points when Harry is trying this sort of shtick mm. he is laughing it off quite a bit like mm. he's not he's like just being like oh, just shut up <laughs> <laughs> But he also did, like that goes to that quite cliched thing of speaking in like mainly in proverbs the whole time. Yeah, and yeah. It's, there's not much of a character beyond these kind of like base portrayals of, like yeah. you say, the the bushman or the like Aboriginal figure in yeah. like in films set in Australia. Well, it, it 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 it's the it's like the magical black character, isn't it? Mm. It's that. And he literally has that magical connection with the land. Yeah, they're tapping all yeah, of it. Is when they, they summon the sandstorm at the end. Can, and yeah, and he can see what he gets premonitions about what's going mm-hmm. to happen, isn't it? Um, if I'm talking shit, please do tweet in and say, check yourself. But it, it just yeah. it, it had a an air of iffiness. Mm-hmm. I fully agree. Um, it reminded me, I don't know if it's a film you've seen. Have you ever seen Nick Reg's Nick? Walkabout. Walkabout, yeah. No, but I saw that was cited in mm. in, the, in a thing. No, but you have, haven't you? I saw it a couple of years ago, and it, it is, it's a very similar plot. It's like this, it, again, it, it, that Walkabout is very much a more adult targeted film about two uh, siblings being left out in uh, the middle of the Australian outback by their father who tries to kill them and then kills himself when he drives them out there one day and then they're left out there and have to find their way back mm. and along the way they run into uh aborigine who helps them find their way back to civilization all the while they kind of just learn to kind of let go of the um comforts of modern society as it were. that again mm-hmm. it's that sort of it played out in a much more abstract is quite... it os- os- is it exploitation or is it a a whether a, a watered down I, I'd probably a bit more watered down, but there there is quite like it's quite trippy in terms mm-hmm. of the way, the visuals it does. A lot of it's like quite it's a, predominantly a silent movie for the most part of it. Um, I did cool. I didn't fully vibe a bit. I thought it was very beautiful to look at. Mm-hmm. I, it's got some quite uncomfortable moments in the casting of Jenny Gutter, who was still quite young in it and. Yeah, I won't get into that, but <laughs> you have mentioned this in the yeah. past, and it, yeah, but uh, it, strange taste. It was it was weird how much that kind of transplanted here, and, uh, and not to go to go too too much into Lawrence, um, uh, oh, Lawrence Van der Post, the author of the source material of this, but it came out a lot that he made up a lot of shit in his books, and I wouldn't be surprised if like there's just a lot of hearing these sort of tales has just kind of bled into this and it's why you kind of get this weird kind of mm. tone to this whole thing because nothing fully feels like it's really actually grounded in much of a genuine experience yeah um be that through an adaptation trying to then modernize it for a 90s american teen audience yeah but then being released as a walt disney movie with a roger rabbit cartoon in front of it <laughs> it's a it's a weird hodgepodge of like approaches to yeah like I can only think that part of like attaching the Roger Rabbit cartoon to this is in the hope of trying to get something on it that would make people want to buy a ticket more mm. to go and see it at the time. Didn't work because I imagine it was a hard sell. Mm. Uh, but yeah, clearly didn't work. <laughs> 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 uh, 
can see this being um, the thing that word of mouth and very easily tank, and in this case, yeah, did. Uh, and uh, to talk, or about... didn't like a complete lack of word. Yeah. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Three million dollars opening weekend, and <laughs> but to talk on like a, another one of its more broader elements as well. The the, the overarching villain mm. of the plot to turns out in a twist that everybody saw coming is uh, John Ricketts, uh, the family friend. Turns out he's the one who's uh, ordered the death of Nonny and Harry's parents and is the one storing all this ivory to ship it off. And it is uh, Machani's um, mission in this whole movie, across his whole two months, to find this ivory deposit. And there was just one scene where they, they, he's been looking everywhere for it. And he's getting like, to the point where it's like, there's literally nowhere else I can look. And they're in a helicopter at one point, and the guy, the, the pilot's like, there's an old mine down there. And he's like, no, don't worry. That's one of Ricketts. We shouldn't look. We don't need to look there. He's cool. And I was just like, you, you goddamn idiot. <laughs> You've literally been looking everywhere for like at least two months. You, like, you were looking for this before these children went missing. And you're running out of places. You'd probably go like, I'll give it a look just to be sure. Yeah. It's like oh. a movie when, when when someone is hiding in someone's wardrobe, say, in the baddie's wardrobe, and the baddie hears someone in their house and is checking every nook and cranny on the way to finding the invader, and they walk towards the wardrobe where a hero is hi- hiding, and the hero calls saying, Honey, could you come over here and look at this? So they, they say, Okay, and they don't look in the one place where the, yeah. where the hero is hiding. I'm sure it's, it's fine. Bullshit. <laughs> Very annoying. But it's stupid. I was just like, you goddamn idiot. You goddamn fools. <laughs> and also his right hand man, uh, Jardin or ja- ja- Jardin, mm-hmm. looks like um like a, a weird cross between Kurt Russell and Simon Mayo. Yeah, I thought that too. <laughs> Weirdly enough. <laughs> what you thought that exact thing? <laughs> really? <laughs> wow. I'm not surprised. I also love that bit as well where it's like Rickett start like after two months, kind of, yeah. they start to get suspicions that the kids might be alive again. After the, he had told his right hand man to be like, make sure you kill them, and um, <laughs> there's that point where the right hand man he's like, "You did go and bury the bodies, didn't you?" And he and he's just like, "Yeah, sure, <laughs> I definitely did." Gets <laughs> a bullet in the face for his troubles. He doesn't. Do- he falls out of he's a very gun. A gun prone is Ricketts for a man who's trying to keep on the low down of like running this like evil organization mm. of um, loves, selling loves, ivory. Loves shooting people and loves shooting things. Yeah, big into his shooting. A, like, and it, there's again, it's like there's this very the final act is a, again just a such a veering mess <laughs> <laughs> where you get get it that um the kids are found uh, after uh, Kabu gets bitten by stung by a scorpion. They luckily get found, uh, like just over a June, as a family by the coast, and they get taken into a hospital. And they manage to, um, Machani manages to get some news that they're there, and he goes to find them. And then they know it's Ricketts because he tried to kill them, and they tell him, and he's like, "Ah, I never would have thought it was Ricketts." <laughs> Damn it! <laughs> and so they go to, they finally go to Ricketts' mine, and then it <laughs> when. <laughs> When they go to this mine and find all the ivory, who just happens to turn up with a shotgun to the... <laughs> it's, it's old man Ricketts. What are chances? 
but uh, thankfully Harry gets a drop on him. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> he buries him in in, in well, tusks. This is the bit that I was going to get. That I just thought it was so funny. They set up this whole dynamite light, like the the fuse, and they light it, and it's like. All right, that's that done. And then Rick is just like, no! <laughs> just goes chasing after this fuse and trying yeah. to catch up with it. And I'm just like, what's your, you're not catching what's your up end game this, here, man? fella? <laughs> what it is. Rick, it's, no! Phil <laughs> wants to give you the satisfaction of the baddie dying, but he doesn't want to have the complicated feelings of the heroes being complicit in that death. So yeah. it's a totally guilt free bit of <laughs> murder, Chad <Rick>, Freud. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Ricketts, no! <laughs> Stupid. Also, I, I, it's like uh, Nonny's and Harry's dads look identical. Yeah. And also Ricketts and a Simon Mayo guy look pretty similar. I, what's that? It was quite difficult. Condition to... where you can't distinguish faces, like face. Um... Don't know, to be honest. <laughs> uh, I'm sure there is a name. Condition <laughs> where. You can't recognize faces. Hang on, it's a Google search term. It is called face blindness. (laughs) (laughs) Do you think there was a more scientific (laughs) name for that? (laughs) Face blindness. What's the word when I can't think of obvious expressions? (laughs) Expression blindness. Idiocy! Um, yeah, so I kept get, I, I kept getting a lot of the men, especially in the first twenty minutes when I wasn't really paying much attention anyway. But I kept I couldn't really tell who was who. Who is Harry in relation to Nonny? Which one of their parents is? Who lives here? Why are they? Why are Harry and his dad here? So they were friends. That they were friends with, particularly Nonny's mum. She was. I think she was quite good. Friends oh, because with... she was friends with Harry's mum before she yeah. died. Yeah, they do uh, say that in dialogue. And I. He was gonna like, and he had like two choices. Like he wanted Harry wanted to go skiing or something for his yeah. holiday, but his dad was like, "No, I've got friends out I'm in go Africa, and we're gonna or, go there, and we're gonna go Zimbabwe. for something a bit different." <coughs> and you're gonna enjoy it, God damn it! And then, yeah, <laughs> <coughs> uh, rubbish, stupid, boring. You don't get much with Nonny's parents either. No, um, they die very more, quickly. More from a dad, where he kind of like positions himself as his strong Do you have the one scene with uh, Ricketts where he's like, oh, the damn ivory trade! I must... I'm gonna do it! I'm gonna stop it! And he's like, they're tearing apart the soul of this country, and this is the only country with a... This is the last country with a soul, I think, is something like that. I wrote the quote down. It's a good quote. This is the last country with a soul. The last country with a soul. And the cinematography does try. It does. It does. It does. Yeah, that it looks. It looks nice, and particularly in the the, the dusk and the dawn mm-hmm. bits, he's very good at giving it like the the silver light of dusk and that red glow of dawn. No, vice versa, rather like the yeah. red the red glow of of dusk and the silvery you know sheen. Because like brings. a lot of this is desert, and it can be quite difficult to make mm. desert look visually appealing mm-hmm. beyond kind of like a mass of one color, but it does do. Very well, um, particularly to use the shapes that shapes that kind of naturally form in this landscape as well. Yeah. One thing I did enjoy about this. One thing I did enjoy. It's just disarming. <laughs> uh, All right. I feel like we haven't had a good Amblin dog in a while. 
Oh, this is a good 90s. point. I, I feel like we've been a bit short of them uh, in this decade thus far. Um, this decade's been short on a lot of stuff thus far. But I, I really enjoyed the dog in this one. Hintzer. Good dog. Hintzer. Uh, Hintzer. He, he's loyal. Um, brave. And he fetches dynamite. <laughs> oh, that's really cool. It's really cool when he does that. Although I got a bit concerned because like... When they get I thought found, he was dead. You don't see him again. <laughs> He's gone. Was he mauled by the pack of wild dogs? Not wild dogs. Because he did get mauled the... a bit, but he jumped the ravine still, and he did have injuries. But then you see him kind of just licking them, and he seems all fine. Yeah. And he is with them when they um, get picked up at the hospital. But then you never see him again. I'm pretty sure. I don't remember seeing him again. When Harry does his lame uh, gesture of love by coming oh. back after... Seemingly boarding a plane. Who gives a shit? I want to know where Hintza is. <laughs> that is Hintza. Where's Hintza? Schnell! Uh, early contender then for our Good Boy Award of the good 90s. Good Boy Award. I'm trying to think of any other 90s ambling dogs that were like really good. Balto. Balto. <laughs> yeah, maybe he's got it sewn up. The <laughs> 90s. Right, the rate we're going right now. The 90s need some fucking personality so far in it's, the ambling stable. It is struggling. A a, it has been a weird run, hasn't it, actually, so far? It's, we've had some crackers. We've had some crackers. But, um, and there are a lot of crackers still. I mean, we've got way. some... I mean, we're one... Stop saying I mean. Just say what you mean to say, man. We're one episode away from the cracker. <laughs> oh, we are one episode away from from a great one. <laughs> the cracker. The cracker. You prefer to hear the cracker now, but um, yeah, and I, I, I get, this might be a good point to like before we kind of get into that. What is one of the big defining? Mm. Amblin movies. At this point in the journey, as it were, does this feel like a weird kind of pocket um, where they are seemingly kind of like working through some random routes and it's only when the kind of like Papa Steve comes back in that it really like gets <laughs> one, it has one that really hits it out of the park and is and is a hit because we've had a Few for a few for the last few episodes that haven't really done very well. <laughs> one of those was Papa Steve's, though. One of those was Papa Steve's. So but he, that did he, all right. he was that did here, all right. but was he here? He was here, but was he here? Mm, that's yeah. that was still a success. Yes, it was. Um, it's weird, if, yeah. Because I was going to say to you when's the last time we had a Steve, but then that was two episodes ago yeah. we had a Steve, and then next episode we got a Steve coming up. It's weird. His turnaround. Mm-hmm. He sort of limps through the back half of the 80s, Last Crusade, notwithstanding. Struggles to take off in the 90s, and it won two in the same year. Yeah. You know, makes the biggest blockbuster of all time in some respects, and one of the most, you know, the best picture best, of that year, according to the Academy. Best director, Oscar. Yeah. But yeah, this feels That's like the. When you think the last, like, handful, Five Goes West feels like a trying to feel out a start. The decade that doesn't quite work. Cape Fear's uh, deviation from the kind of like Amblin label in a way, and and then you have stuff like Gremlins Two and Arachnophobia, which feel more in key with what you kind of expect out of the house on paper, but mm. don't necessarily set the barn on set the barn on fire, as it were. And this is another one which does just feel like a odd kind of. I don't quite know what the 
general appeal is because it mm. doesn't really work as a kids movie i think it's probably too boring for teenagers to get much out of it it's it's too thin and juvenile for adults yeah or, or whatever it just kind between. of it just kind of sits there and floats away <laughs> it's all weird when you think that the decade began with joe versus a volcano which mm. is one of the most esoteric auto driven delight like singular things that we've covered yeah. in the whole podcast so far you think oh cool i guess we'll start a new decade we're gonna get a bit weird with it take a few chances and then you go straight to a sequel a sequel that i love back to Future part three but it's a sequel that's quite mm. safe and on the rails haha on the rails <laughs> and another sequel that's maybe the most anarchic sequel of all time yeah. that, that breaks the rule completely but it, it doesn't really joe versus the volcano in both the Amblin filmography and in in uh, John Patrick Shanley's filmography, feels like a beautiful uh, butterfly, a beautiful yeah. snowflake, a beautiful, butterfly. a beautiful butterfly. So yeah, so the nineties, I don't know. It's a weird, it's a weird uh, meander in the desert. Mm. Even ninety three is going to be a weird year because straight from Jurassic Park, we're going to wear back a dinosaur. <laughs> <laughs> It, it, it's it's strange. It's I guess it is. You've got to try these things out. You've you have a, a production company, and, and the fact that it's sustained itself for, and it's still going as a as a testament to the juice it has in it. But I suppose the first decade, you 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 everyone's excited, and, you, and a lot of filmmakers are given the carte blanche that they want to do whatever they want, and then then it becomes it's not establishing it, it's sustaining it, and that becomes yeah. a harder thing. And as we're seeing now with Marvel, not to always invoke that bloody bear moth but it is like <laughs> the more you need to self-sustain the beast that the maybe less risk the more risk averse you become perhaps because mm. you don't want to i'm not even sure if it's a case of that it just feels like a bit of a case of like trying on different hats and seeing what fits and nothing's mm. nothing everything seems to fit a little awkwardly well, go minute. to a different shop is what i say yeah. go to a different shop at this point because yeah. i'm a little bored <laughs> 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 No, that's actually... You know what? You know what? I think what it is, it's because we had such a long run-up to this episode. Before that, Noises Off, that was a lot of fun, but for yeah. different reasons. Hook, American Tale, they were, that was such a valley for me. <laughs> I forgot that we'd had Cape Fear. That's a weird, yeah. a weird, great uh, instalment. Arachnophobia. Fun. H- half dull, half really fun. Yeah. <laughs> So um, I think I'm being a little... I've allowed... like The past month or whatever it's been for us in real life, 2022 time, has made this decade feel duller yeah. than it actually has been. Because there have been some interesting things. Yeah. But it's not being sustained. But then I suppose yeah. such is the risk you take when you decide to cover a whole production company's exactly. output on your podcast. They're not all going to be E.T.'s. Be winners. <laughs> You're going to have some David Pumpkins in there. <laughs> That's a 2016 reference for you. <laughs> I just think in general it's quite interesting that nothing's really a hit a lot of the time mm. when, it, when it's not either in the, an established uh, franchise like you said or, or a Spielberg. Mm. It's like... it's. Well, yet, well, it's been a while since we've had one that was like a bona fide big blockbuster like a, uh, that wasn't in that kind of yeah. realm. A reputation maker. Yeah. I'm a Back to the Future. To, yeah. Which I'm, I'm, I'm just trying to think if we have it before Men in Black. <laughs> you got the list in front of you. Yeah. Wow. Uh, 
How did Casper do? <laughs> I did pretty well. <laughs> Spoiling the future episodes. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, almost. But yeah, I just think it's quite mile. interesting that it does take. It does seem to take a little while to get there again. Yeah, because then it go, it go. Because I think I, ha- I have a a, a pro- an issue with a lot of the sort of genre-ish fodder it's doing. Like I really hate Sorry, this my emails again. bland <laughs> Mister In Demand. <laughs> this bland coming of age bullshit that this film is. Whereas in the late nineties, you get into some more. B movie territory, like with Twister and the trigger effects, oh, and fuck yeah, yeah Twister. small soldiers, and that's it's such a fun movie, yeah, yeah, I mean, <laughs> a real mess, and a bit of a flop, right? A famous sort of a famous, um, no, he did pretty well actually. Twister was a hit, I yeah. remember that as a flop, maybe nah, it's because Twister was big when I was coming of age, Twister Fever, baby. <laughs> when I was coming of age as a film fan, it would often feature in like total films, worst movies of all time lists, and stuff like that. It might be something like just pure nostalgia cotton in my brain around Twister, but I remember Twister being a lot of fun. Again, I don't think I've seen it since I was about mm. 10, 12 years old. But I remember that movie. You know what fun. it is? Uh, the, the, the sort of literally the back half of the 90s is a lot of preteen boy fodder. A lot of stuff I guess this is a, to this sell this toys is to be young the, boys. And that is the period where we would have where, started where remembering we when we were into watching yeah, them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so the, the period we're in now bit of a yeah. drought nostalgically which is yeah, a, i mean maybe, it's maybe a that's... problem when you're looking at things critically because it does prove that your judgment can be clouded yeah it's true <laughs> but by the same token these films are pretty boring this film wasn't great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah maybe it's just a consequence of this film just being quite a pale dry thing to really kind of find something to talk about with it because it, 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 yeah, I did find it quite hard to be like, mm. what's interesting? <laughs> what is interesting? There's a bit when he thinks that cat food is pate. Yeah, and she's like, hey, you're eating pate. And she thinks he's going to be grossed <laughs> out by it. But then he goes, ha the joke's on you because I love it. And he and gets a little call it. back does, later, doesn't yeah. he? He said, we'll always have pate. <laughs> it's good when he does that, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> um, do you have anything else that you, any other observations of the far off place that you uh, want to uh, bring up before we uh, wrap up this venture? I think probably this probably going to end up being our shortest discussion on Hate the boys one full feature. Oh, it's kind of sad seeing a young Reese Witherspoon mm. who's so full of life and at the very start of her career and thinking, ah, oh, one day she'll be out there shilling NFTs. <laughs> <laughs> Of course she <laughs> yeah, That was my parting thought. Um, hate Harry, hate his face. And the bits when they're roaming in the desert made me think of Ishtar, which I really like. And uh, I wish I was watching Ishtar. Um, that's, li- that's it. That's it. That's all yeah, I have, man. I think one, of my, one of my last notes of that was just kind of summing up the film was dead parents, hero dog, poachers, teenage romance, and dynamite. <laughs> that should be on the poster. It's a far off place. <laughs> <laughs> right, give that to Emily and ask her to design a poster based on that. <laughs> that is the tagline. <laughs> yeah. Because holy cow, that's great. That's fun. So if you are in any way intrigued, a far off place is not available on Disney Plus. <laughs> but it is on YouTube, and we shouldn't encourage you because it is illegal, it is. isn't it? But and we have to have we have to say it, as well. Disney yeah, they don't give a shit. Yeah, and they would take it down. 
Whatever. Maybe this will be the episode that finally gets it removed from YouTube <laughs> and finally gets it put on Disney Plus because they're probably listening. <laughs> from Walt Disney Pictures and Amblin Entertainment. How far off is this place? It's pretty far. They were two extraordinary people. Nearest towns across that. Yeah. Forced to set out on an impossible journey. Now they'll risk everything they have to escape from everyone who tried to stop them. It's an unforgettable story of courage and triumph. It's America. A far off place rated PG. We put out the klaxon for a tweet or tweets and uh, messages from listeners mm. uh, regarding a far off place. And you all came in your droves of one. And that is from our good friend Andy Peterson at Pose to Pose AP on Twitter. Uh, I have to admit, he said, the main reason I went to see a far-off place in the theatre was to see the final Roger Rabbit short trail mix-up, which is delightful, as I think, I think we all agree. And as we... Uh, <clears throat> and as we... And as, uh, and as, as we were saying, saying earlier, yeah. um, we reckon that was probably why a lot of people did go we'll and go see this see in theatres. Um, There's a bit could, in it that is a bit like the factory bit in Attack of the Clones. Yeah, which I, I remarked. Gets copied. Yes. <laughs> I just realised that we mentioned Attack of the Clones earlier, <laughs> and I said we will bring it back, and I didn't, so I had to work it in. Oh, this is bringing it back. Yeah. <laughs> and Andy concluded his tweet by saying, but I remember thinking that the main movie was decent enough. Certainly not painful to sit through. And he's probably right. No, it wasn't painful. I it was just a bit dull. Just a bit dull. It's... <laughs> It was just a bit dull. It was just a bit dull. <laughs> when I was at school, I used to, I sort of, I, I almost fell into being the high jumper for my school athletics team because I was the least bad. I can imagine during you the tryouts, and I just innately understood the Fosbury flop, and I, I, I didn't even think about doing it. But then when I started doing actual tournaments, and I used to tour different schools and whatnot with my school team, I somehow got in my own head, and because it's a literal bar you've got to cross, I suddenly like. One day, just forgot how to do the Fosbury flop and started trying to scissor, which is oh, what it yeah, sounds yeah. like. And you can't get as much height with that unless you have long legs or are, you know, tall, very, very Naturally tall. Tiggery. Yeah. <laughs> so it, it, the more I thought about it, the more I tried to work through that, the, the more impossible it became for me to get past it. And it, that's kind of how I feel about this movie. <laughs> it's not that, it's not painful. But the more it became a thing, like a looming thing in our heads, the more I thought, I'd re- I, I, this is going to fucking suck. And it became bigger in my head than what yeah. it actually was. So it wasn't awful. Just dull. No, there's, it's just dull. And it's hard to make a film. But like sometimes the ingredients just aren't No, there. They're just not there. I only brought that up to show off that I used to be athletic. I enjoyed the story, though. <laughs> Never came first. Bronze. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a bronze kind of guy. Did you ever get the Fonsbury? The Fosbury. The Fossey flop back. Yeah, <laughs> never got the Fosbury flop back. But now, dear listener, that does about wrap us up for a far off place. And whilst this one may not have been terribly exciting for us or maybe even you to delve into <laughs> if you we should put, give a message that if you made it this far in the episode tweet us what can they tweet us tweet whether us. they were in the high jumping team in their school and tweet they us Fosbury flop. Fosbury flop hashtag Fosbury flop <laughs> but uh yes 
Wallace's one may not have been. And that's spelled F O S B U R Y, then flop, which is F L O P. That will be the marker. This will be this will be the real test for you, rambling <laughs> listeners. <laughs> but dear listener, don't worry, do not fret. We'll be back in, with a begin next week. Um, here's a clue as to what it is. That's right. It's time for the episode that has been 65 million years in the making. It's time to take a trip to Jurassic Park. Steven Spielberg's 1993 blockbuster adaptation of Michael Crichton's novel of the same name. If you don't happen to have the this classic to disc, it is available to stream for those of you that have a SkyGo, Now Cinema, or Virgin Go subscription. Otherwise, you can rent or buy the film digitally from Amazon, Apple TV, Chile, Google Play, Microsoft Store, Rakuten TV, Sky Store, and YouTube. All right. <laughs> uh, if you've got any thoughts on this film, which, mm. come on, it's fucking Jurassic, Jurassic Park. Park! <laughs> Tweet us at Ramblin' Amblin' with the hashtag Fosbury Flop. Uh, or email us email us at ramblinaboutamblin at gmail.com that's at ramblinamblin on twitter ramblinaboutamblin at gmail.com uh, via email and this is, I, I am quite uh, this one feels daunting in a way that even um, E.T. and Back to the Beach didn't because first of all they were very early in our run Yeah. and second of all I think this is a film that I know the most people who have a fierce adoration like me with Back to the Future level adoration four, so I expect I expect a lot. Yeah, uh, I'm worried how long it's going to be. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <sighs> yeah. I am looking forward to it. When I'm was the last time you say you watched Jurassic Park? Recently-ish, I think. Yeah. Either just it's one I come to back to quite a bit. So. <laughs> I think it was just before lockdown. But yeah, it's never hard to watch, is it? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Uh, but we we hope you'll join us next time, where we we uh, will hopefully be joined by a couple of uh, Jurassic heads for the chat as well. Um, it's going to be an epic episode, I think, in in both in size, scales, <laughs> and one I might cry about when I get to the editing bits. <laughs> but yes, we hope you all will rejoin us as we welcome you back to Jurassic Park. Until then. We hope you all take care. Uh, May all your dogs be able to fetch dynamite. And I have been Andy Godian. I've been Joshua Glenn. (laughs) And both together we've been rambling an Amblin podcast all about a faraway place. Far off place. <laughs> and uh, see, I've been struggling with that title in my head for so long because I keep yeah. thinking like Far Away Home or something. Yeah, shit like that. yeah, it's Fly Away Home, Fly Away Home, but also <laughs> home, home and Away. <laughs> home and Away is the uh, uh, Far and Away also. Yeah. Home and Away was the soap opera. Anyway, yeah, listen. All, what we're trying to say is we're sorry. We're sorry about this one, but we hope you come back for Jurassic Park because it. I do not doubt it will be a good and one to one to that. Um, I hope many of you fans will be chomping at the bit to listen to mm. so we have been rambling and rambling all about 
a far off place. <laughs> Did I say something? No, wrong? you said it right. You said it right. With such like d- defiant. Yes, I can do this. See, I can do this. Actually, Mum. <laughs> uh, we hope you join us for Jurassic Park. Until then, take care. Goodbye. Jesus. Oh man, I'm sorry about that. <laughs>